0: I am the junior high pastor, which means I get to hang out with your 7th and 8th graders all the time. Um, Maybe you remember when you had a 7th or 8th grader, whether you have one in the home now or you used to have one a long time ago, but you might remember that that's the age when they start to stay home by themselves, where you and your wife leave the house and leave them in charge of their students. If you remember what that was like... It's not all smooth sailing, right? Where you've got your younger kids having to submit, in a sense, to this new authority structure where they got to listen to the older sibling. Maybe you've got an older son or older daughter, and when you left all your kids at the house, you said, listen to your older brother or listen to your older sister. I want you to remember how that went down the first time, all right? probably not very well. It probably wasn't such a good situation because it's a new authority structure that's almost unnatural. It almost feels weird because your younger kids could say, they could say, I don't have to listen to my older sibling. You're not in charge, They could say, well, mom and dad's in charge. I don't have to listen to these, this guy. I don't have to listen to my older brother. He's just a year older than me. He's just two years older than me. Why should I have to listen to him? And really the answer is because your parents, the, the parents put them in charge. That weird, awkward structure of derived authority is what we're going to run into today in First Peter. Peter essentially says that we are supposed to be subject to our governing authorities, whether to the government or our bosses or whoever's in charge of us, so to speak. Right? Not because they're better than us, not because of anything like that, but because we're supposed to do it for the Lord's sake. So I'd like for us all to turn it open in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, if you got it on your device, I'd love for you to call that up. 1 Peter chapter 2, we've been continuing in this series, it's exciting to just kind of jump in the middle here to see where you guys have been. Last week, if you remember, Pastor PJ said you're an exile, you're a sol- uh, sojourner, and you're also a soldier, All right? He says that you, as a Christian, if you are a Christian in this room, you are a person who's fighting against the flesh, you're fighting against your own sinful desires, and in a sense, you're fighting against the world. Verse 12, that you guys covered last week, says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, right? When you're acting with non-Christians, make sure that your conversation, make sure your actions are above board. Make sure that they're praiseworthy. Make sure they're worthy to be followed as an example. And he says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, right, as many non-Christians do, right, and you can all think of times when non-Christians say things bad, say evil things about Christians, it says that... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Most people think that means that in the end, you want to be leading those people to salvation, right? By your good works, you could set evangelism conversations up so that when the last day comes, those people will glorify God in part for your good deeds because your good deeds were the thing that set them up to hear the gospel. Now, verse 13, continued in that same idea, It says, be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And it's helpful that he has, for the Lord's sake, right there, because um, be subject to every human institution does not sound like a command that um, we want to follow. Be subject, be, put yourself under every human institution, just go find the PTA, go find the, you know, the women's weaving club, put yourselves under that institution. No, um, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying every institution, if you find it, just join every club and, and submit to every leader that you can. That's not what he's saying. What he, what he is saying is, you've got plenty of human institutions that you are currently under, right? And what he's going to mention is one of them right here. He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So really that's their God-given role. Their God-given job is to help those who are doing good prosper and punish those who are doing evil, right? They don't always do that. In fact, even in Peter's day, that government didn't only do that. They also persecuted Christians, which is interesting. He says you're supposed to honor them. Verse 15 says, gives the reason, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, if you look at verse 15 and you look at verse 12 that we covered last week, those are very similar. They give reasons for why we should do these commands, right? It says, fight your flesh Because if you do that, you're going to set yourself up for evangelism conversations. Verse 15 says, be subject to authorities so that you will squash some of the slander that's happening. Two different reasons, all really for the same result. It's God, that's what God wants. It's God's will for us. Verse 16 says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. You're free and you're a slave. All in one, right? That's, That's fantastic. All in one verse. We'll unpack that later. Verse 17 says, honor everyone. Show that respect, that deferentialness to everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's even even harder, right? Love, self-sacrifice to those who are Christians. Fear God, right? See how we're kind of escalating here? Honor, love, fear. And then it drops back down here at the end. Honor the emperor, which takes us back to verse 13. This whole section basically What Peter wants to get across and what I would love to get across this morning is that we need to willingly and humbly submit to our governing authorities. Whether we like it or not, regardless of their morality, regardless of their policy, we we have to in some extent submit to them because we're submitting to our ultimate authority, right? Because that's what he says right at the beginning. Be subject for the Lord's sake, not for your sake, not even just for the non-Christians that you're trying to reach. The ultimate reason that you're going to be subject to these human authorities is because Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. And while the world doesn't recognize that, Jesus Christ is the Lord. And according to Matthew 28, he has all power. And according to Revelation 11, he's going to take that power and he's going to begin to reign. So Jesus is the king. He's going to initiate that authority and he's going to start using that authority in a more intense way than he is now. But just recognize that by submitting to our authorities— we're submitting to Christ. Just like your younger kids, as they submit to the older brother or the older sister when you leave, really, they're not just submitting to them. They're submitting to you. They're doing what you want to do in that situation. Back in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject, right? What does that mean? Does that mean I have to be a slave of every government? Does that mean I have to find every human institution and just put myself under it and say, well, you're the the boss, you're the king, whatever you say, right? No, it's not. Because it's for the Lord's sake, we know that there's a different level of authority here. But certainly the idea of honoring, which comes at the end in verse 17, says honor everyone and honor the emperor. That's a good place for us to start when we think through what does Peter really want us to do with our government, right? Honor. Might be hard to define what honor is, but it's easy to see when it's not there. Right? That makes sense. Might be hard for you to define, well, what does it mean to honor, right? Well, it's pretty easy for you to figure out when it's not there. Right? For example, this term be subject to comes up another time in First Peter. It comes up in First Peter 5, 5, when Peter says, those who are younger should be subject to those who are older, right? However you would want a 21-year-old talking to you, right? That's I'm a 21-year-old, sorry. Um, That is how you should expect for you to treat the government, right? How how do I, how how would I expect for them to be humble and deferential? What would I expect them to say? What would I expect them to do? Would I expect them to be rude? Would I expect them to be insulting? I wouldn't expect that because, oh, they're younger and they should, you know, be helpful to someone who's old. They shouldn't be insulting or rude, right? That's the same idea. So however you would want a younger person to treat you, is how you ought to think through your responsibility to honor those who are in authority. Point number one, it's pretty simple. You can write it down like this. Show respect to all of your authorities. Show respect to all of your authorities. Like I said, respect, honor, how do you define that? What does that look like? Well, it's pretty easy to tell when it's not there. When you can be able to talk about things and in our country it's great because we have the freedom to voice our opinion and even create change and because we have elected officials we can work to elect new officials to create new policies which is great but you got to do that respectfully you've got to do that without a rudeness without an insulting tone that the world is really great at doing have you noticed that the world is really great at insulting their governing authorities they're pretty good at that right you know, turn on the late night shows, right? Watch any of that stuff, right? They're pretty good at insulting their authorities, right? There are other people who maybe critique those people, right? But they do it in a totally different way. When you watch those people, it's like, wow, that's totally different because they're not attacking their person and they're not saying they're so stupid and it's like, there's a different way of going about that. And as citizens of the United States, you got to figure out as a Christian who submits to Jesus Christ ultimately, and then as a citizen, of, of this country, you got to figure out the balance. Really, one thing that's helpful is to know that all this authority really comes from God, right? All the authority of every president, every governor, every congressperson, every boss, all of it's from God. None of it is outside of God's sovereignty. None of it. There's a verse that helps us see this. You probably turn to these verses in your uh, questions beforehand, but Romans 13, if you Got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Romans 13. I want to spend a little bit of time there because Paul gives us some clarification on what this looks like. What does it mean to be subject to you? What does it mean to respect our authorities? Well, Romans 13, Paul has basically the same sentence right at the beginning. In verse one, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Right? Okay, great. Same command. Well, why? For there is no authority except from God. Right. So think about that. Every authority that's on this planet, right? Whether it's you over your children, whether it's your boss over you, whether it's the government over you, all of that authority structures have been instituted by God, right? Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. You think that word judgment is reserved for the really bad stuff, right? Being disrespectful to authorities, that's... God's going to judge that, right? Yeah. Whoever resists it, resists ultimately God, he's behind it. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. There should be a, a little parenthesis there which says usually, right? <laughs> usually. And that's what Paul's getting at. I, does, does Paul know that sometimes the authorities are bad to people who are doing good? Does he know that? Absolutely. He knows that. He's living in the first century in the Roman Empire with, with emperors and Caesars who hated him, right? He knows that. He, got, he gets that. But in the general order of things, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. That is a hard verse right there. He is God's servant. That word servant, It's a special word. It's not the same word as as we looked at in 1 Peter, that we're servants of God. This word servant is the word minister, right? It calls to mind this Old Testament idea of how priests would minister to the people of Israel. Basically, they're a servant of the people. That was the idea. And that's why today, you know, actually, I don't know if that's why, but people will say, or used to say, I'm a government servant, right? I'm a servant of the people, right? That's the same idea right here from Romans 13, that they are God's people, to serve you for your good. But if you do wrong, verse four, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, that was the first reason he gave up in verse two, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. That's like the third time he said that, ministers of God. Attending to this very thing, pay all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And in reality, right, if you put these two passages, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, what is Peter's explicit command at the end, right? Who is due our honor, right? In his situation the emperor, the governors who were sent by them. Paul goes further, 1 Timothy 2, he says, at the beginning of this chapter, he says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, right? Four, you know, categories of prayer there. Supplications, right? Asking, prayers, intercessions, standing between, thanksgivings, be made for all people. Verse two says, for kings, in all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and godly life. Godly and dignified in every way. Uh, he's saying you should be praying for your kings, for your officials, for your governors. You might say, wait, well, hold on. Time out, right? I would if I like them, right? If my government's good, I'm going to do more of the offering thanksgivings than the intercessions, right? I'll I'll pray more if they're good because I'll thank God for them more, but I won't pray for them so much if they're evil. Peter and Paul don't know what it's like to have an evil, oppressive government, do they? Obviously being sarcastic. The end of Peter's life and the end of Paul's life, their lives ended at a similar time actually. Um, They ended during Nero's reign as emperor. Nero was the emperor from 17. To 30, from age 17 to 30, not the years, from the years 54 AD to 68 AD. But he was 17 when he took the throne, right? You think it's bad that the junior high pastor is preaching a men's Bible study, right? Imagine being a 17 year old leading the Roman Empire, right? That's craziness, right? And he didn't just get there on accident, it didn't just get willed to him, and he was just the. No, he killed his father in law, or he killed his stepfather to take the throne. So, 17 year old punk, right? Kills the father-in-law to take the throne. Right? That's bad enough. Then he kills his stepbrother to keep the throne. Right? Okay, well, those are all step siblings, right? He never kills someone who's his own flesh and blood until he killed his own mom. He killed his mom because he realized that his mother exercised this authority. I mean, think about it. You got a 17-year-old kid, right? His mom is clearly an important person in this empire. People had she had influence, people listened to her. Right? You can imagine how this all worked out behind the scenes politically he had her killed. Killed his own mom. He killed his first wife, which I hear is not uncommon Um, in history. Not, not, if you killed your first wife, we need to talk afterwards. Um, No, he killed his first wife. That just happens a lot. Kings do that. Um, That's all I was trying to say there. Sorry. Um, He killed his second wife, if it makes it any better. Um, So he's killed his stepfather, his stepbrother, his own mother, his first wife, and his second wife. And the way that he killed his second wife was actually kind of graphic. Um, They say that she was pregnant at the time. He was angry and he stomped on her. He stomped on his own baby, killed them. Their emperor was a bad dude. Worse than that, his sexual ethics, as you know, were bad. What he would do is he'd often find Kids, young men, young boys who were between the ages of 6 and 12, bring them into the palace. He'd rape them. He'd castrate them. He even married one of them in this weird Roman ceremony. Maybe even worse than that, what he did to Christians was terrible, right? You might know the, the famous fire of Nero, right? Well, you can see the picture of him playing on the fiddle, Right? Whether he played in a fiddle, we don't know, but what we are pretty sure about is he did set fire on part of the city to kind of clear it for a building project, and he blamed it on the Christians. He made Christians the scapegoat. He said, the Christians did it. I didn't do it. The Christians did it. What he did to punish the scapegoat that he made for his own wrongdoing was, one of the things he did was he'd sew them up in animal skins. He'd sew them up in animal skins, push them out into the Colosseum, and let them get torn apart limb from limb. Another thing he did was he would take Christians and he would, um, as he would do with any criminals, he would stick them on stakes in his garden. He would impale them. He'd light them on fire to have his nightly garden parties outside. Our brothers and sisters burning alive in his gardens. That's what Peter knew. That's what Paul knew. What they didn't know is what would happen to them. What this emperor would do to them. According to church history, Paul the most important, the most influential figure in the early church beheaded under Nero's rule. Even worse, the author of this book would go on to be crucified by the very person he is telling his audience to honor, That's intense. Even worse than that, the story about how Peter died is, is graphic. His wife apparently died with him and what his executioners wanted was they wanted Peter to see his wife die first. So what they did was they tortured and killed Peter's wife in this position where he was bound and he couldn't do anything about it. And he had to watch his wife be tortured and killed. And then when it came his turn, he said, don't, don't crucify me uh, right side up. Crucify me upside down because I don't want to die the same way as my Lord. Right. That's this submission to authority. Right. Why? How, like, how could you do that? It's because he's he's serious about this because he has a higher goal, right? Just like Jesus says, his kingdom is not on this earth. My priority, my ultimate priority is not with the politics of the day. It's about something else. It's about the kingdom of God, right? Looking forward to one day where we will step into the kingdom of God. He knew what it was like to have bad authorities. And think about it, Peter prayed for Nero. Peter prayed for Nero, put names and faces to it the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, they prayed for Nero. I'm sure they prayed that he would be saved. I'm sure they prayed that even though Peter and Paul certainly had friends of theirs that were torn apart and impaled in garden parties and lit on fire by Nero, they prayed for Nero. They begged God for God to save Nero. We have government officials too. Um, Hopefully, that little reminder about Nero's life can help us take away our excuses for not liking our government right It's not so bad right? it's not good it might not be great, but it's not that bad right? just like I put faces and names together, I want you to put some faces and names together too right according to First Peter 2 or first Timothy 2 called to pray for our governing officials right you have some governing officials too. on a national level, you have the president. Donald Trump. You have the Vice President, Mike Pence. You have the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Should be praying for those people. Last night they groaned when I said the last one. Um, (laughs) They all groaned here. In California, you have people who oversee the the politics of California in in a special way. Your governor, uh, Gavin Newsom. Your senators, Kamala Harris and Dianne Feinstein. Your local government, right? If you're in District 48, which is um, from Huntington Beach, kind of all the way down to Costa Mesa and Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, Elisa Viejo. District 48, that's Harley Ruta. Um, District 45, if you're in Irvine, Laguna Hills, Mission Viejo, Rancho Santa Margarita, Cota de Casa, that's Katie Porter. If you're in District 49, which is San Juan, San Clemente, Dana Point, Rancho, Mission Viejo, that's Mike Levin. Right? Those are some names, right? You might, know the, you might not know their faces but surely you've heard their names, right? And it'd be helpful for us to think through the responsibility we have as Christians, as citizens of another kingdom, to pray for the leaders of this one. You might be thinking, well, isn't there a time for not obeying? When is he going to get around to that? Yes, there is a time for not obeying. This weekend in, in Acts chapter four, Pastor Mike talked about civil disobedience, right? Remember that? Where he said, hey, if you're by necessity going to have to sin, then I guess you have to disobey, right? But what he said was, so far in our government, we're not there yet, so far, right? In some situations we might be, right? But when it comes to sharing the gospel, we're not quite there yet in our place and our time, right? Which means we can be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, just as Jesus said. Yes, there are examples of civil disobedience. Acts 4, right? Exodus 1 with those Hebrew midwives. They were told to, commit infanticide. Talk about something that's current, right? Infanticide. They're told to kill these babies. They wouldn't do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and Daniel 3, they were told, yeah, you got to bow down to this statue. Not only do you have to, you know, revere the king, but you literally have to bow your face down to this statue that I made and worship it, And they said, we're not going to do it. He seemed to be the only Jews that were Refusing to do it. You know the story there. They're thrown into a, a furnace. Right? And even beforehand, they said, God's able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're going to still do this. Right? Even if we die. Right? Because if you, if you go through the Bible and look through who's saved out of their martyrdom by a miracle and who's not. Right? What's the, what's the graph going to look like? Right? It's mostly they're not. Right? So our expectation should be, if we're willing to be civilly disobedient, right? Well, then get ready to pay the price. That has to be part of your thing. Shadrach, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego didn't say to Nebuchadnezzar, that's a terrible policy that you put in place. Um, you, can't throw us, you can't throw us in the, in the furnace for this. You, you can't do that. No, no, no. You can't. Well, in effect, they said, look, we don't even have to answer you. You're not God, right? God can save us, right? But they didn't say, I think it's a terrible policy and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna stand by it, right? They just, they said, okay, that's what you've decided. Now I'm willing to do what God says, right? They didn't have it both ways. All of those cases, right? Exodus 1, Daniel 3, Daniel 6, right? Daniel was said, you, you can't pray, right? Someone told Daniel, right? You can't pray, that decree went out and Daniel 6.10 says, when the decree was signed and he knew it, he went back to his house he went back to his window where his window was open to Jerusalem. He prayed there morning, noon, and night, three times a day as he had done previously. He didn't change his pattern because he knew this is, this is about me and God. Right? If I'm told I can't pray at all in any situation, right? Even that, right? It wasn't you can't pray in the palace. It was you can't pray at all. Even in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own heart, you can't pray to any God. But King Darius, right? He said, it's ridiculous. I, I'm going to have to do it. And what did he do? He got sent to the lion's den, right? Even Darius, the guy who signed the law, he tried to fight it, but you don't see Daniel fighting it, right? Something you don't see there. Thrown to the lion's den. God protected him. All these cases, their civil disobedience was driven by their fear of the Lord, right? That was their motivation. It wasn't because I want to be more comfortable. It wasn't because I want uh, a, a economic advantage, it was because I have to do this because I fear God more than I fear any of the consequences. If that's not your motivation for civil disobedience, you should probably check your heart and rethink your civil disobedience. It was also less convenient for them to disobey. I think that went through. In all those situations, it was less convenient for them to disobey. It would have been more convenient for them to obey, right? Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They could say, I guess along with all the other Jews, yeah, I'll just bow, but I won't bow in my heart, right? I won't like really say it in my heart, but like, I'll just, I'll say it and I'll just go along and say it, but I won't do it. They could have made a ton of excuses, right? But instead their conscience and really not just their conscience, the law of the Lord, think about the 10 commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven statues, right? They were informed by the law of God and they said, we're not going to do it, right? But it was less convenient for them to disobey. Thirdly, it all cost all of these people severely, or at least potentially, right? The Hebrew midwives, it never really says that they got caught, they got caught by God. God saw it, We don't ever know if Pharaoh caught them, but it would have cost them severely if they were caught. We're gonna read in Acts 5 in the main service about the apostles, where it says that they got beaten up, got beaten with clubs, and then shoved back out on the streets and said they were rejoicing, that they, they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That's a whole different mindset. Civil disobedience. That's the exception, not the rule. So, respecting our authorities, submitting to our authorities. We do it for God's sake. But he also gives, back in 1 Peter 2.15, he also gives another reason. Not just because God wants us to, but God wants us to do that for a specific end. He even tells us. He could just say, do it, and I'll explain why later, right? Just like sometimes you tell your kids, well, just do it. I'm, I'm dad. You just listen to me, right? Well, I could have done that, but he also helpfully gives us a reason. He says, for this is the will of God. This is 1 Peter 2, 15. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? There are people, just like we find out in verse 12, that had slanderous criticism about, about Christians and about Christ. That Peter says, let's just shut this up, all right? And we're not going to shut it up by necessarily persuading them, right? We're going to shut it up by showing them, right? Certainly there was some persuasion involved, right? With the slanderous criticism, but he said, let's go earn a good reputation for Christ, right? That's point number two, earn a good reputation for Christ. In order for you to do that, you got to realize that you're doing that for a purpose, right? That's not just the end in and of, in and of itself, You're not just doing this so that your friends who are going to go to hell when they die think, oh, well, Christians aren't that bad. This is a means to an end. This leads to something else. Ultimately, the end that Peter gives is, I want them to glorify God on the day of visitation. I want them to glorify God when Christ comes back. I want them to be excited that they're on God's side. And I want them to glorify God for your good works. Earn a good reputation. I feel like it's the first thing I say about myself and people say about me, but I like to play golf. Um, I am a regular at the golf store that's local, Roger Dunn. Um, Roger Dunn has a policy which says within 90 days you can return everything for full price. I'm not a very good putter. I've had about seven different putters in the last year. It's just back and forth, mallet, blade, toe hang, face bounce. Like I just, I can't decide. So I've just been going back and forth, but it's like, whatever, it's, it's free. So my wife says, like, you got a new putter? Did you spend money on a new putter? I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like 90 days. I just got it all back. I only paid 10 bucks for this one. I only paid 20. So I feel like over time, I'm definitely putting more money into this. So like, if I look, never mind. Um, I don't want to think about it. I started listening to my friend who, um, if you know anything about golf, he's got a Scotty Cameron, okay? He's had the same Scotty Cameron for about 10 years. This guy is the best putter of the golf ball that I know personally. He's awesome. He doesn't miss. When he's within 12 feet, he can just pop it in. He's got this weird stroke, but he just makes everything, It's not Pastor PJ, by the way. Um, Pastor PJ does have a Scotty Cameron, but he's not the person I'm thinking of. He's not the best putter I know. Um, I just had to get that in because he's not here. Um, He's not here to defend himself. I could hear him, never mind, okay. So, my friends got this Scotty Cameron, and I wasn't listening to him for a long time. But then after a while, I started putting two and two together, and I, I was thinking, wait a minute, you're saying this is the best putter, and then you're the best putter I know. Uh, ding, 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 wait a minute, maybe I should listen to this guy. Maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. So, I drank the Kool-Aid, I bought in, I'm now a Scotty Cameron owner. I bought a Scotty Cameron, right? It was a big life decision for me. There was. Getting married, Scotty Cameron was like number three on that list. Um, (laughs) But I put those two things together because he backed it up, right? He didn't just sell me on it, right? He sold me on it. And then over time, I kept seeing how he's putting. He's he's a good putter. He's a good putter. And he he sold me on it by his actions, right? That's what ultimately pushed me over the edge. It wasn't just his talk. What pushed me over the edge at the end was, wait, I I finally believe you now because I see it, You probably are selling Christ to some people, hopefully you've got some people in mind that you've been sharing the gospel with, right? How are you doing at backing it up with the way that you live, right? You'll say things like, you know, if you become a Christian, right, what happens is you repent of your sins, you turn from your sinful lifestyle, you put your faith in Christ, right? You have this steady foundation in Christ, you don't have to be anxious, you don't have to be afraid, you don't have to be worried, right? And when it comes to repentance, you don't have to live in those old sins anymore, God sets you free from the bondage to those sins, the enslavement that we have to those sins, right? Even just think through those two areas with repentance and faith, right? How are you doing when it comes to showing the people in your life what real repentance and real faith looks like, Are you constantly worried, constantly nervous? Or do you have faith? You trust in God, Whatever happens, happens, right? James 4, right? I can't plan for today or tomorrow, right? I'm not gonna boast about tomorrow. Just going to be settled in the fact that I'm going to work hard and God controls our future, right? So that's it, okay? when it comes to repentance, right? Are we doing a good job at, at showing that? That so yeah, repentance is real. It's not just a word, right? That's what happens when we really have our life changed by God, that our hearts change, that our motives change, that what we do changes, that our words change, even at work even among the people that we're trying to share the gospel with. And I'd say, especially among the people we're trying to share the gospel with. If you know Colossians 4, it's that section where Paul asks the people to pray for his evangelism efforts, right? Verse 5 says, we're supposed to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, and keeping our speech good, right? Keeping our speech righteous, When it comes to the reputation we're earning for Christ, I think that that's the number one way that we do it. It's by our speech with non-Christians, right? If it's not the number one way, it's the number two or three, it's close. How do you do with your speech when it comes to setting yourself up to share the gospel? I'm not even talking about what you say when you're trying to share the gospel. I'm talking about what you say in between those times, just casual conversation, That's the question. Are we earning a good reputation for Christ? Are we setting ourselves up to share the gospel. He said that there's two things that Peter says. He says, I'd love for you to lead people to Christ, verse 12, or I'd just love for you to shut the people up who are keeping people from Christ, verse 15. And really that's what this verse is about. Not just leading people to Christ, but also taking those slanderous criticisms about Christ and about Christianity and and squashing them. In the first century, in the second century, there were a lot of slanderous criticisms that people had about Christ and about Christians, right? The word that Paul used, or that Peter uses is ignorance of foolish people. That's a willful, sub, or a willful suppression of truth, not a whoa, well, I just didn't know. No, like I, I, know, and I'm pushing the truth down. And He says there's people like that. Right? There were three main things that the world, so to speak, the culture charged Christians of in the first and second century. Right? The first one was that they were atheists. Right? That was a slanderous criticism. They said, you're an atheist. Why? Well, because Christians rejected gods, right? The Romans didn't reject gods. They would worship certain gods, but they would never reject the existence of another god, right? Every nation has its own god, right? And if you even think about um, the, you know, just this, the melting pot of cultures that was the Roman Empire, right? They come into one place, they have their god. Okay, great. You've got your god we've got our God, we've got our set of gods, right? And they would at least, in a sense, respect the existence of those other gods. What did Christians come along saying? There's only one God, right? There's only one God and Jesus Christ is son, right? That's, that's it. There's, there's no other gods, right? They were called atheists. Right? Another thing was when they were told, hey, you got to put a little incense in here and you got to say Caesar is, is Lord, Rex, King, God, right? They wouldn't do it. Why? Were they not submitting to what Peter and Paul said in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2? No, because it was this this praise of divinity, right? Caesar's, oh, like, he's kind of like God, I guess, right? That was what that worship service showed. And the Christians wouldn't do it, so they were called atheists, right? Imagine sitting down with the first century Christian. You're just a, you know, regular person. You're asking him, so I heard that Christians are atheists. Is that true? What is that person going to say? Of course not, right? That's a slander. That's just not true, Another thing they were slandered of, you probably know this, is that they were called cannibals, right? You know why they were called cannibals? Because they had a meal that they got together. It was only the Christians. They wouldn't invite the outsiders to this meal, right? Where they ate flesh and drank blood, right? Oh, right, right, yeah. And they wouldn't even invite people. It was like a little cult going on, right? They wouldn't invite the outsiders to that meal, they would let outsiders come to other stuff, but they wouldn't let those outsiders eat the flesh and drink the blood. You had to be a part of the club to do that, right? Talking about communion, obviously, the Lord's Supper, right, that they would uh, figuratively, and, and right. I think that even in the first century, they had that memorial view that we have today that we're eating this bread, we're drinking this cup as a representation of Jesus's body and his blood, not his literal body and blood, but a representation of his body and blood, right? And guess what? The culture said, you're cannibals, right? You're atheists and you're cannibals, right? Sit down with a Christian first century. Are they going to say, oh yeah, we eat f-? They'd be like, no, of course not. We just, it's just this symbol that, that, that our Lord said before he went that we ought to do, right? The third thing, you might know this one too. Um, they were charged of incest, right? They were told that, oh yeah, you guys marry your brother and sister, right? Because all of you guys call each other brother and sister, right? And some of you are married to each other right? Obviously, they call each other brother and sister, just like we call each other brothers and sisters, because that's a biblical idea, right? They weren't literally marrying their brothers and sisters. They were just marrying other Christians, right? Even think that through. They only married other Christians who they called brothers and sisters. So there's this weird cult extended family where they're all intermarried, right? Is that what Christians were? No, that was a slanderous criticism. Those three things, atheism, cannibalism, and incest, right? Those are just three. There are more. Those are three. I want you to think through some of the slanderous criticisms today that Christians have. I don't think Christians are called those three anymore, at least not in our culture. But there are things that Christians are called that's slanderous. That's not true. One thing that you've heard a lot, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, they'll say, I don't want to listen because Christians are all hypocrites. Right? Is that true? No, it's not. Is it true sometimes? Yeah, it's true sometimes. But are all Christians hypocrites? No, absolutely not. To an extent, yeah, I mean, we can't live perfectly, but we ought to recognize where we're wrong. And even in their standard of hypocrisy, right, everyone's a hypocrite in a sense, right? You could call them on some hypocrisies, right? But at least when it comes to their standard of hypocrisy, right, not all Christians are hypocrites. That's slander, right? Now, 21st century non-Christian sits down with 21st century Christian, levels that charge. What are you going to say? Of course not, right? And hopefully, if you know the person, you can present the question, do you think I'm a hypocrite? Right? Am I living a hypocritical life? Right? And usually, because you know, people are deferential sometimes, they'll, oh, oh no, not you, like everybody but you. Right? You're just that one that I know, right? that's really good. It's like, okay, well then, that's not true. That's a slander. Right? Peter says, by your subjection, by doing good, you're putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? That's a foolish thing to say, that all Christians are hypocrites. The second thing, people say that Christians are all hateful and unloving, right? You've heard that one before. Christians, they're just narrow-minded. They're just hateful and unloving, right? Is that true? Are all Christians hateful and unloving? Of course not, right? Of course not, right? And then you say, am I? Am I hateful and I'm unloving? Oh, well, no, right? You might get into some dangerous territory here because what they define as love might be, I'll just accept you and whatever you do, no matter what. And then you have to step back and say, hold on, wait a minute, right? Scripture says God is love and that God demonstrates love. So let's define love by God, right? Which is not embracing everything and everyone for every reason, no matter what they've ever done, right? That's not what love is, right? But if you take them back to scripture, you can at least show, hey, Christians love, right? But you know the best way to show that? Is by you loving them, right? That's really the best way. Third thing Christians are called is ignorant or stupid. Right? Christians are just stupid, they just don't, they just don't understand like the rest of us, right? They just believe in some fairy tale God, right? I hope that by your conversations with people, you're able to show yeah, Christians aren't ignorant. We're not stupid, right? We know why we believe what we believe, right? And maybe you're thinking, I don't, you know, there's a lot of things in scripture that like I don't understand and I don't know why I believe that, right? I know I believe it, but I don't know why I believe it, right? That's an area that maybe that we could step up in, right? If we don't know how to defend something, let's, Let's research it because it's in the Bible, right? It's God's truth. We're going to find the truth at some point. Those three charges are just three. There's more, but I want you to think those through that you can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, even in our day, by earning a good reputation for Christ. Peter goes further. He says, Live as people who are free, back in 1 Peter 2. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God, right? You're free. That means something, and you're a servant of God. Right? That means something else. Right? Interesting. How can we be free and a slave all at once? Right? Well, New Testament, you've got that word servant, just translated servant, right? Could also be translated slave. Maybe it should be translated slave. That's a stronger word than just servant. There's other words for servant, right? Slave, doulos, that's, that's another word. It means slave. Right? You're a slave of God, right? Romans 6 says that you were at once slave to sin. One point in your life. You were enslaved to your vices, you were enslaved to your drinking, you were enslaved to your anger, you were enslaved to your lust, you were enslaved to whatever you were enslaved to. And then you, when you became a Christian, God brought you out of that. Now you're not enslaved anymore. You're a slave to God now. What Romans 6 says, verse 18, Romans six eighteen says, and having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 22 in the passage, this is Romans 6, It says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Right? Free from sin, slaves to God. Right? That's how we live right now. So we are free in a sense and we're slaves in a sense. That's what he's getting at. Then he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That ascending scale of honor, love, fear, back down to honor. It says, fear God and we're servants of God, right? If we're fearing God and we recognize that we're servants of God, that motivates all the rest of this, right? Honoring everybody, loving the brotherhood, right? If I really fear God, if I really respect God, if I really understand what he wants me to do, that's gonna motivate me. Point number three, serve God by serving people. Serve God by serving people. You can use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You can use your freedom. You can say, well, I'm free to do what I want. I'm free in Christ. Right? You can't tell me I, I got to obey those ceremonial laws. You can't tell me I got to do this. You can't tell me I got to do that. I'm free in Christ, right? So I'm going to do whatever I want with that freedom. Right? The Bible is so clear. Right? This passage, right? Galatians 5.13 says, For you are called the freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another, right? That's all over the Bible, whether it's Peter or Paul or anybody else, right? Even James, James 2.12 says, act and live as one who's gonna be judged under the law of liberty, right? You're gonna be judged by God under the law of liberty. You're set free, but you're still gonna be judged, right? By God, all over the New Testament. That is so clear. Honor everyone, What does that mean? Just like you submit to and respect the emperor, right, you're called to honor everyone. Right? Back in that first point I said, maybe it's hard to define what honor is and what it looks like all the time, but you know when it's not there. right? Rudeness. Quick. Insulting. Angry. Mean. Those are all things that should never characterize the way we treat anyone, whether we agree with them or not. Right? Even in our Dealings with people who are evildoers, right? Should never be rude or insulting or mean. It can be quick. It can be it can be steady. It can be based on the word of God. It can be sure. Doesn't have to be wavering, like oh well, I don't want to judge you or no. It can be sure, right? God's word gives us that, but it can't be rude. It can't be dishonorable. It can't be disrespectful. Honor everyone. If I told you um, that you and I and some other people were getting together, we are going to India. We're going to be missionaries in India. We're going to live there for the rest of our lives. You're never coming back, right? So you can sell your house. You can sell everything, right? Leave your, well, if your family's here, right? You got to, I guess, leave your family, whatever. Um, but you're going there, and we're going to be missionaries in India, right? When you got there, you would live a certain way. There are certain things you probably wouldn't do. You probably wouldn't take to your social media and vent about their food and their culture, right? And how bad everything is in India, would you, right? If your goal was, I want to reach people here, right? That's probably what, that's probably not the reputation you would earn for yourself. You probably wouldn't go on Facebook and blast their government officials in India. If what you're trying to do is reach Indians for the gospel, right? Probably wouldn't do that. We're elect exiles, We're living in this place at this time. We're ultimately citizens of another kingdom. We're gonna live in God's perfect kingdom forever. That's why I love the brotherhood is an even escalated command, right? Honor everybody, be kind to everyone to an extent. Don't be rude, don't be insulting, right? But when it comes to your brothers in Christ, when it comes to your sisters in Christ, we're a family, right? Love those people, sacrifice for those people. Be willing to do whatever it takes. Be willing to pick them up at the airport, right? Be willing to go get their car. Be willing to go do whatever. Pick up their laundry. I don't know. Um, do whatever. Right? Be willing to do that, just as you're willing to do that with your family members. Right? You have extended families. You have mothers-in-laws and mother-in-laws. You have in-laws. You have family, extended family. Right? And the further you go out, the less responsibility you might feel to them. Right? But you've still got family. You've got responsibility. Right? That's what the family of Christ is supposed to be like that we're responsible to each other. We're gonna take care of each other if we need it. Galatians six ten says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. Notice, I mentioned it before, but there's this progression. It's almost like a ascending staircase. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, right? That's the highest, right? And then it drops back down. Honor the emperor, which takes us back to the beginning, right? Some people have noted in that passage, and I think, it's, I think it's wise for us to see this, right? there's this ascension and a drop when it comes to the emperor, back down to that level of, well, like everybody. Right? Why? Well, because ultimately, you don't have to fear the emperor. Right? These Christians were about to go into a world where the emperor said, you gotta praise me as God or I'm gonna kill you. Right? Peter says, you don't, have to, you don't have to fear that emperor. You should honor him. You should do what is is necessary to to make him happy and to pay your taxes, but you don't have to fear him because he's not God. He's not the Lord. Philippians 3 says, we're citizens of heaven and from heaven, we're awaiting our savior, the Lord, the Lord, the King, the supreme leader, Jesus Christ, the ultimate authority. That's, we're waiting for him because he's gonna come down and he's gonna transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So then, We should stand firm. When you get home from that time of leaving your oldest son, or oldest daughter in charge of your kids, you want to hear a good report from that child and you want to hear that your younger kids are doing the right thing. You want to hear that. And if you hear that your younger kids were total brats to your older kid, you're not going to be happy about that because it's a disrespectful thing to you. When they're disrespecting the eldest, they're disrespecting you. In the same way, our respect and our fear of God should motivate us to listen to our annoying older brother sometimes. Even if they're flawed, even if they're sinful, because they are. Should push us to submit to our government, even though it's flawed, even though it's full of a bunch of sinful people, sometimes doing sinful things. We're still called to submit, just like Peter says. You guys got to submit in the Roman Empire. We're called to submit to Let's pray that we would do that. God, help us with this. Um, I know that this is a hard one. um, that We have to listen to people we don't want to listen to. Um, I just pray that uh, you'd help us do this. Know that we need your help. I know that you want us to be people who are submissive and honorable and respectful, not people who are disrespectful, I just pray that we would do that. I know that this can be difficult and hard. So I just ask that you would help these guys do this. The men of Compass Bible Church would be known for their honor to everyone. While the world can be dishonorable and disrespectful in their criticism and in their critique of what's going on in our country, I pray that these men would be known as different. They'd be known as respectful and cordial, never uncivil and never rude or insulting just to be insulting that you'd help us do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.